Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. It's Friday, September the 23rd, and after a hiatus of almost two months, we're back in the room for the Irish Times Inside Politics Wrap of the Week. I'm Hugh Linehan, and joining me are Pat Leahy, Jennifer Bray, and Jack Horgan-Jones from our political staff. Welcome back, all. Good afternoon. Hi, Um, Hugh. Hello. It's a back-to-school week, and that's why the the wrap is on. It was back-to-school in Dáil Éireann and in the Oireachtas and in Leinster House. But, Pat, on Wednesday, things didn't quite pan out as planned. No, I think everybody will be uh, familiar with what happened at the Dáil on uh, on Wednesday. There was a protest outside that the Gardaí clearly had some advance warning of because they had the entire street uh, cordoned off with metal crash barriers that they use for specifically designed for not just your normal single-tier uh, uh, crash barriers, but a sort of a double tier crash barrier that is specifically for crowd control in these circumstances. So they had all of um, they had all of Kildare Street shut off to traffic, uh, Molesworth Street shut off to traffic, and there was a group of, I mean, would you call them protesters or demonstrators? Um, I, I, if they were protesters, they certainly weren't pro- all protesting about the one thing. And, uh, I mean, there were certainly, uh, uh, a lot of them appeared to be in sympathy with far-right ideas, far-right causes. They were calling for, there was famously or infamously, there was a fake scaffolding that they were carrying around with them with the pictures of various politicians of all parties uh, on it. Some of them appeared... Uh, to be vaccine sceptics or lockdown sceptics. Some of them were uh, anti-immigrant, carrying anti-immigrant barriers. Um, Some of them carrying banners of the National Party. And uh, I suppose, what would you describe them, if somewhat pejoratively, as a sort of a ragbag of far-right causes? And they screamed abuse at uh, politicians going in and out. People might have seen the uh, video of Michael Healy Ray, who came out of the doll, walked down Kildare Street and then down Satanta Place and was harangued in very aggressive, uh, while being escorted by two guards, was harangued in really aggressive and violent uh, terms uh, by them. That went on. For much of the afternoon, then they went around to the other side of Leinster House, the Marion Square uh, side, and blockaded the gates. 
at the Merrion Square side with the result that TDs couldn't get out. That's where most TDs parked their cars and for a couple of hours TDs couldn't get uh, couldn't get their uh, their cars out. They were eventually cleared sometime between six and seven by Gardaí and about 13 arrests uh, I think were made. So Jack, you were there as well. You were observing these people. I, I watched quite a lot of video of, of the event. Um, if it looks like a duck, and quacks like a duck, it's a duck, I would describe them as fascist. Well, I think the Tonishta said it was almost fascist-like behaviour, and I think that what that is is mostly hung on is not necessarily the uh, the political ideology that was being espoused, uh, such as it is, um, you know, it was, as Pat said, a kind of grab bag of loosely connected, you know, themes ranging from conspiracy theories up to uh, stuff that, you know, is part of political debate around migration policy and all the rest of it, all the way through vaccine uh, scepticism. Um, Ireland for the Irish, a preponderance of, of, of the tricolour, which is unfortunately becoming a marker of, of far-right uh, protests. Um, and I think what kind of elevated it beyond, uh, beyond you know, just a, a protest, which a lot of the political world viewed as odious, was the... Uh, the treatment of both Michael Healy Ray and Donegal O'Leary, the Sinn Féin TD, who I think was a try- trying to, to enter the doll and was uh, was kind of prevented from doing so, and similarly received a, a Garda a Garda escort, and was it was getting extremely uh, extremely extremely hairy for him, really, to be honest, going going on the video. And um, also alongside that, people who just happened to work in Leinster House were being abused on yes. their way on their way to work. But we're not used to seeing that at protests. Uh, roads were being deliberately blocked by rather threatening-looking men. Reading Miriam Lord's description yeah, of yeah. what was going on, and I, I think I think that again, that's that's where you, you trip from. You know, a, a protest which many people may find distasteful into something that kind of has uh, you know provoked this genuine thread of concern. I mean, we it's not the first time we've seen something a bit like this at Leinster House. I think that uh, the the rear car park has been blocked before. I remember during the austerity era, I think actually um, a group of a group of protesters tried to rush the gates at government buildings. And I think there may have been some, some Sinn Féin actors. I think maybe was, Ona Bryn was there. It was one of the Sunday nights, actually. Yeah. People, I mean, we're going back into the mists of time now, but in the autumn of 2010, people might remember, there was, a, there was I think, three successive Sunday nights in government buildings where yeah. there was announcements were made. One that we were going to apply for bailout, one we'd accepted a bailout, can't remember what the other one was. And on one of those nights, I was there for all of them, and on one of those nights, there was a group of Sinn Féin activists. I think a... Um, uh, there was certainly some Sinn Féin TDs uh, were, were there. I think Angus O'Snoddy was there. Yeah. And they came up to uh, government buildings and sought to come in through the gates of government buildings. I watched it at the time. I remember thinking when the gates, they pushed the gates, the gates kind of opened. Yeah, and they didn't quite them, know what to do. They didn't quite know what to do. I think yeah. they, my sense of it at the time certainly was that they were... They were pushing at the gates in the expectation that they wouldn't open. And, yeah, but, it was more but, of a dramatic but anyway, gesture. Yeah, but but yeah. Jack is right. We have seen um, we have seen this sort of thing happen. Not so, so much that lately. sort of thing happen, right? Okay, but I think the, the, the where where the kind of gradient change is, uh, and the reason why people are so perturbed by it, is the the prospect of you know legislators being prevented from accessing the legislature or something like that, which I think people do find kind of genuinely troubling, and ties in with the kind of amorphous theme that was running through the protest, which is basically that there was no single theme, but the thing that tied it all together was this suggestion that anyone internal against the House, be they, you know, 
political or journalistic hack or, or staff, staff or, or whatever, whatever. Yeah. just by virtue of working in there by being part of the political system were traitors and traitor, and, and, traitor and was a word that was thrown around a lot so basically that the, the, the object of this was the object of the protest I think Pascal Donoghue said this as well was parliamentary democracy itself as opposed to a particular manifestation policy or party Jen Yeah um, I can't disagree with anything the lads have said I think something really lame to admit is that I was really excited to go back to the doll on the first day of the term. <laughs> I was like, this is going to be great. Everyone's going to be kicking she, lumps. She's been talking about it for weeks. For weeks. You've got no, your no. copy books all covered in wallpaper and yeah, new school bag. Sparkly yeah. paper and my, you know, pen with the fluffy top. <laughs> no, um, I, I kind of thought people would be kicking lumps out of each other inside the doll chamber. I thought all of the action would be in there. And actually, when you went into Leinster House on Wednesday, it was just like a damp squib. It was completely anticlimactic. All the action was outside. And all anybody could talk about was what was happening outside. And I think the really interesting part of it was what, what Pat and Jack have highlighted is the completely indiscriminate nature of it. Anybody who walked in and out, BU staff, journalist or whatever, were getting it in the neck. And I think there was a feeling of, are, is that because they don't know who all of these politicians are? Well, but, they didn't, according to Miriam Lord. Yeah, Simon Coveney walked in apparently completely unperturbed, whereas Michael Healy Ray got it in the neck and you can see it from... From that video, Conor Gallagher has a really interesting piece in today's paper, yeah, where really he piece. really excellent piece, and where he details like who were the people at this protest, and I read it with great interest. So he was saying in the piece that the the issues that were being highlighted and the kind of protests, I put it in inverted commas, were uh, not limited to asylum seekers, refugees, trans rights, sex education in school, the World Economic Forum, vaccines, including COVID nineteen vaccines, globalization and Ukraine, support for Ukraine. Um, and then there was also one woman handing out leaflets about the right to housing bill, that's that proposed bill, saying that it would allow government the power to kick people out of their homes. So you can see there, this wasn't just one protest with one theme and one placard. This was a group of people with a whole range of different gripes. And I think that the real danger here is not that you look at this protest and say, oh, that's awful. It's that if you look at it and, and it starts to accept little things, right? So you see in the video of Michael Healy Ray, Someone comes up behind him and pushes him. That You see that once and you say, oh, well, that happened before. If you look at what happened in America with politics, what Trump did, it's like degradization of politics. My worry is that we start to accept that and say almost it becomes, well, we've seen it before, so we'll see it again. I think what the Gardaí have to do and Leinster House authorities have to do is firstly figure out a way to make sure that a peaceful protest can happen outside the doll. But these protests, which they knew were going to be serious because the night before the protest, word went out amongst journalists, amongst what in WhatsApp group, you're going to have problems getting access to Leinster House tomorrow. <clears throat> the, such was the concern of the Gardaí that normally they'd let journalists and everybody else in decide if you showed them the pass, they weren't letting people in. So they knew there was an issue here. So what they're talking about now apparently is pushing the protest back uh, so you see from the pictures, there's kind of a no man's area outside the gates. And what they're talking about is pushing it all the way back, maybe to Dawson Street. But of course, then you're running the risk of, um, I suppose, creating massive issues for all those businesses along the street. But also you still have the same problem of of, of getting in and out. And also so, in so a way, do that's do? a victory for a really relatively small number of people there. Can we look at this? Because obviously there are clear, clearly security implications to this, but we're a politics podcast, so let's look at it through a political lens. It is a ragbag of ideas that these people purport to hold or, or, or claim to be protesting about, although we're familiar from other countries that most of them generally come under the umbrella of the concerns of the far right. But it does seem to me, there's an Irish Times editorial today on this subject, that it's in the nature of fascism, I'll use the word again, to grab on potential issues in which it can kind of inject itself 
as a form of poison, actually, into political discourse. And you can see the way in which these kinds of parties, some of which are mentioned in, in Conor Gallagher's piece, jump on the bandwagon of controversies over gender, controversies over children's education, issues around medicine, questions about Ukraine. They seem to be disconnected, but what they have in common is there are all sorts of areas around which there is discontent and spiky debate, and they really want to get in there and maximise the benefit from them. From yes, them. yeah, I think that's probably accurate. And it's the tactic of using these issues. Like, it is legitimate. It's, you know, it's a politically legitimate disagreement to have, uh, per perfectly legitimate to have political disagreements about those issues that you've mentioned, about the capacity sure. of certain communities to absorb uh, uh, to absorb migrants, of the preparations that need to be put into certain communities before, maybe before um, large groups of asylum seekers are placing them by the authorities to, you know, to discuss the viability of women-only spaces and what that means in an era of trans rights, to discuss what is or isn't suitable for children to learn at various stages of the developments. All these are legitimate questions. What is different, I think, is, is the way that these are being approached by, uh, by these groups are these networks which are communicating with one another all the time and I suppose what modern means of communication does is it enables them all to to stay in touch in a way that would have been much more difficult uh, previously but what I thought was different and I think that there has been a line crossed and something uh, we have reached a different stage with these sort with this protest now than we were at with previous ones notwithstanding the difficulties that previous protests and the one that lots of people have referenced in recent days has been the one that Paul Murphy was prosecuted uh, for and acquitted um, we, we should say uh, in uh, uh, several several years ago but what is different about this one I think is the the air of personal menace directed at politicians and also other people in Leinster House. That was, that to me was the most striking thing uh, about, uh, about these protests. I've been reporting on politics for 20 years at Leinster House. I've seen loads and loads of protests. I have rarely seen the level of personal vitriol that was in evidence on, um, on, on Wednesday. And I think the real... And I've talked to a lot of people about this the last two days in and around Leinster House and people in government. And the, uh, the, the real dilemma that there is for them now, and in part it's a security question too, but it's also in its broader sense a political question, is what sort of policing response is now appropriate to that changed circumstances? And are you giving these people exactly what they want by a more muscular uh, approach uh, to policing those protests. And that's quite possible Gardaí. that you are, aren't you? I mean, this this has been a success you for them are, so but far. But you might have no terms. choice but to, but mm. you are, let us be clear that you are giving them And also to say that that doesn't just apply to Leinster House. We've already, you know, people have been concerned for quite a long time about the safety of politicians and we've seen what's happened in, in other countries and presumably other politically related events, you know, could be threatened as well by this kind of yeah, behaviour. Yeah, actually, it's so interesting that that happened on that particular day because to the best of my knowledge, there was a meeting inside Leinster House that day mm. that was scheduled for months in advance uh, since at least June or July around politician safety. It's that task force that was set up and it's um, going to be run by Noreen O'Sullivan 
former Garda commissioner. And there were different groups in there giving presentations, such as Women for Election, about the safety of, of politicians. And meanwhile, this was going on outside. And the difference here, obviously, being that it wasn't just politicians who were kind of being targeted, like you said. And, and the guy said it was, you know, anybody who walked in and out, staff or journalists. And yeah, like while if you move them further away or take a more... Um, stringent Garda response. You could view that as giving people what they want, but I don't know. I think what these, and I don't want to use the word protesters because it's just not the way I feel that they should be described because I think there is such thing as protest of all different varieties, sure. different spectrums. And this is just not one of them. I think when it gets physical, that a line has been crossed and obviously did get physical a number of times. Plus, in Miriam's piece, she talked about how two staff members had like bottles of urine throw at, thrown at them. Like, that's just disgusting. Um, and none of us should be okay with that. So, yeah, you might be giving them what they want by having a harder pushback, but it's necessary if it means, number one, providing for the safety of people, and number two, letting other protesters know down the line, if you want to have a legitimate protest, you can come this far. If you're planning this, you can stay over there. And I, have, I think I, that's fair I, enough. I have, a, I have a slightly different view on this insofar as, like, we shouldn't we shouldn't delve too deeply into the security aspect of it, but Pat is right that the security and the politics over, overlap, and particularly the fear that the security response could reinforce some of the political uh, element, particularly giving them what they want, so to speak. Um, I've been at a couple of these protests uh, at Finglas Garda Station earlier on this year, and obviously there were quite a few outside uh, accommodation uh, centres for those uh, coming to this country, those refugees and asylum seekers coming to this country. Um, and I think that while there has been a, a sporadic iteration of this to a greater extent here than we've experienced probably ever before, uh, it has been that. It has been sporadic. I don't think that has become quite as sustained as in other jurisdictions. And it also hasn't entered the political mainstream insofar as it, it doesn't have a, a voice within representative democracy here yet. And I just wonder whether, you know, it, it, it's hard to prove it one way or the other, but I wonder whether the, the, the kind of softly, softly policing response which is softly, softly, softly in the moment, but does seek to prosecute people thereafter and does seek to arrest people. We shouldn't forget that there were 13 people arrested outside Leinster House the other day, that that may also play a part in keeping this sporadic and, you know, denying them the oxygen of the, that, that they so seek, which is images and footage that would give credence to... To play the to, victim. Yeah, that give credence to the idea that the state is using its course of power to suppress legitimate questions being asked. So, so one, of know, the, one of the pathetic and risible elements of the claims made by these people, it seems to me, is that they speak on behalf of the Irish people. So they were standing there on the street outside a parliament of people elected by the real Irish people. Mm. So this claim never really gets very far until you ultimately gain some element of actual popular support, don't you, at, you know, at, at the ballot box? And it's ju- that's it's what, judging, that's what it's judging when us. that threshold is met, which mm. is really tricky. So, like, is this a signifier event where after, you know, this, uh, this political philosophy, whatever you want to call it, all of a sudden gets more popular? Or is this just a kind of classic iteration of that populist idea that, you know, insiders are betraying the true people uh, and the true people... Uh, are being let down by this bunch of traitors, um, and is that becoming any more sticky than it has been so hitherto in Irish politics? I'm not sure that it, I'm not sure that it is. The local elections become a very important metric, then. Well, it, I don't. You know? think, I Do mean, not, or, or is that is that irrelevant? But, no, no, no. You know? it, I think the local elections will be very important because they will demonstrate that there is, uh, be in the with one or two exceptions of people who might have been elected before. I don't think there's not going to be 
far right councillors elected at the uh, at the local elections. But that won't deter, uh, I think, a lot of these people who are at a different game from uh, from electoral politics and. You know, I, I think in a way it kind of shows the dangers of of, of populism as uh, as described by Jack there. But you know, they weren't. They're not. These guys aren't the only political force. You know, who engage in uh, in, in in populism. And mm. you know, Sinn Fein describes itself as a left populist party, or some Sinn Feiners describe their use of the tactic of left uh, populism uh, as well. And I just think that that. Maybe there's a couple of chickens coming home to roost because the essence of populism is that idea of a corrupt elite uh, acting against the interests of the virtuous common people and the related idea that for all the problems that beset uh, the nation, there are simple solutions which are not implemented by the corrupt uh, elite because they are acting in the uh, It should be noted as well that there are members within the Oireachtas who have skated up against some of the themes and some of the topics well, precisely. That, that, that we saw, you know, giving voice to outside I mean, we the have, House, we've heard migration, gender politics. And, yeah. and, and, and you're right, well, you previously said it, these, these are legitimate grounds yes, for debate. some people in the Oireachtas have skated up against these themes. That is, that is true. But there are also people in the Oireachtas whose avowed political credo, people and people before profit, uh, solidarity, whose avowed political credo, and they've said this on the floor of the doll, is that, you know, the politics of the street can undo the politics of the parliament. And I think we need to be kind of honest about what that means as well. Is there not a basic subscription, though, even amongst people who, who say that within the doll, a basic subscription to the kind of political compact that underpins the Oireachtas and the respect for the mandates that are respectively given in elections. I mean, like, yes, they may... Well, in a way, it's kind of having their cake and eating it. Well, a very interesting conversation between the two lads here, but I put it to you, Jen, that, I mean, without getting too much into the political science end of things, populism, which is being discussed there, is often described actually as a political style rather than an ideology, and it can be applied to different ideologies in, in pursuit of, of political objectives in the way that the, the, the two lads were describing here. There does seem to me to be still um, an ethical qualitative difference between the kinds of activities which are being described there and essentially what we saw distilled into the actions of, 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 of these people on Wednesday. Maybe I'm wrong to differentiate it, but it does seem right to me. There was a big report I noticed came out this week um, on the rise of populism, both on the left and the right in European politics. Uh, it's now deemed to um, be supported by populism, to be supported by about one third of all voters in European Union countries. And of those two two sorts of populism, left populism and right populism, it's the right that's more swiftly on the rise. Yeah, I think so. But also, like, I, when, I, when you think about populism, like, I, when I imagine I'd think about populism that has a cause, you know, if you look at the kind of populist, that, and oh no, Brian has said Sinn Féin is a populist party. He said that before to the, to the Business Post. You know, it's either anti-austerity, it's anti-water charges, like there's a movement there um, that's large enough to, I suppose, precipitate a protest that has a an actual message. And if you look at what happened outside the doll, if you look, actually I went outside and if you look around at the different placards, it was actually really hard to understand, okay, what is this protest about? You know, one of the placards was Ballybrack says no. Another one, I think it said something like Ireland for the Irish or something something along those lines. And then there was actually one man with a very small sign that said, I am angry, which told you specifically nothing. 
but I can associate with that. I might get one of those little cards myself. But <laughs> Leave me alone. I am angry. <laughs> to bring it up to the news desk. Constantly have yeah. it on. The, but, but that's what me. I mean. There is no unifying theme. And no, that's but why the ones you've described are anti-migrant. And very often that anti-migrant position, yeah. or in, the, in this case, the anti-migrant position nearly always shades into overt racism. That's fine. But then you also had people who, you know, were anti-COVID vaccine, anti-vaccination, World Economic Forum. And to me, it was so disparate as to when you went out, it was almost confusing. I was like, well, what is this actually about? Whereas I think if you imagine parties like Sinn Féin with a populist cause, anti-establishment, anti-government, or previously, you know, people for profit, anti-water charges, um, and what have you, this is just a little bit different. So I agree with you when, you, I, when wonder, I went... Maybe I spend too much time on the internet, but I can recognise... certainly true. I, uh, yeah, I can recognise <laughs> the outline of a set of ideas which are purport to be against globalism, whatever that is, for the nation and against outsiders, however exactly that's defined, but it tends to be uh, quasi-racial quasi or quasi-racial quasi, quasi racial in, some, in some way. The, the classic populist thing of the elites are traitors, are selling us out to minorities. I mean... Yeah, go to Germany, go to France, go to Spain. They all have political parties that trade in exactly that space. Of course, yeah. But actually, and you mentioned Miriam's piece earlier, she had a really interesting line in as well, where they were saying, you know, traitors, which is what Jack said was a recurring theme, um, resign. And Miriam had a line where she was like, what? All of them? And it's a good point. You know, like, who exactly are you directing this at? Everybody. Um, so that uh, that's what I would say about that. And I would kind of go back to the point I make about my fear is that, you know, if you just accept this or say, we're not going to have a, a bigger policing response, we're not going to change the way we approach this, that it just kind of legitimizes or normalizes it. And I don't think there's anything normal about it. Um, and I think that a line has been crossed and something has to change, really. Is there a risk of overreaction as well, though? Yeah. Like, I mean, we have we have had one of these protests very unseemly as it was. Mm. Um but there is something to be said for, I was talking to the Karen Corla yesterday and he was making the point that, you know, this is the people's house. And the idea that seemed to be kind of in the background afterwards was, I think the phrase that was used was, was, was sanitized, you know, that there should be a sanitized zone around Leinster House. I mean, this idea of, of kind of restricting access in any kind of meaningful sense to the quarter around the, the government campus uh, within the capital off the back of one... Which is also one the location of, attend, of many of our national museums and galleries. Exactly, yeah. Like that as well. yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and there's some reporting today around, you know, the idea of a 1.6-kilometre exclusion zone. I mean, 1.6-kilometres is, is the city centre, mm. more or less. So, I mean, like, I, I, I struggle to see that happening. But I just think we should, or, you know, the political system should kind of tread carefully when it comes to... Um, examining what this means for political life and then how that might become expressed in terms of an actual security response or response in terms of restricting access to, to Leinster House even more so than it is. And I think you've seen some some of the, particularly on, on the Fine Gael side, interestingly, they've been saying that as well. Helen McEntee said it and the Taoiseach said yeah, it as well in I, Miami. I think that is, I, I think the, what Jack outlines is a wise approach, that we should be cautious about the response to it. At the same time, I think that the political system yeah, yeah. needs to recognise the seriousness Correct. of it. But there is something else as well, and that is the political context has changed after the invasion of Ukraine and all of the Ukrainians who've arrived here, all of the debates we're having about direct provision centres. The, the political context has changed in Ireland. There is a lot of unrest in communities all across the country, and that will feed into a, a far-right sentiment. And I think to close our eyes to it now and be like, this is just one protest, let's not overreact... I think down the line, we could end up looking back and going, there were the roots of it. 
perhaps okay, we didn't it's, pay it's attention. That's why it's so tricky. It's, it's tricky to extrapolate the correct signal from all this and yeah. the correct response. And it is entirely possible that whatever approach you take is going to have its fair share of, of, of flaws. Yeah, we'll take a break now. We'll be back discussing what was going on inside the gates of Leicester House. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I think I made a false promise uh, before the break because I said we were going to talk about what was happening inside Leinster House and then I heard, well, not very much really. So we were going to talk perhaps at a slightly broader canvas, uh, Jen, which is... The relationship between the government parties, they are now entering, as we as we mark on this this term, uh, really the start of the wind down or the wind up to a year of elections uh, next year. And some sharp elbows starting to show between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. Yeah, in a, in a couple of different ways. I think you saw it. Um, I wasn't around for the thinkings, um, but at the Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael thinking, obviously the farmers were protesting outside in relation to nitrates. And there were two kind of different messages from, from both sides, obviously, uh, Charlie McConlogue was saying that the EU, who want to reduce the, the level of nitrate allowance, um, are not returning. And obviously farmers are, are very annoyed about this because they believe they'll have to reduce cattle size. Um, on the flip side, there's concerns about water quality, etc., etc. You can get into the ins and outs of that debate. But the gist of it was, while the Minister for Agriculture was saying this is happening, on the flip side, uh, Fine Gael leader um, Taoiseach Leo Varadkar seemed to be saying, well, we'll invite X, Y and Z over and, and we'll see what we can do. Uh, there was kind of commentary that he had overruled Charlie McConnell, but he didn't. I don't think that's fair to say. But I think he's trying to appeal to his uh, to a, a base in Fine Gael of farmers who are becoming increasingly disillusioned with Fine Gael um, and perhaps trying to offer an olive branch. Well, Speaking you could of understand why Fianna Fáil would be really cheesed off yeah. about that if their minister has to go out and present this highly unpopular, but in their view, absolutely necessary change in policy that's happening at EU level. And the next thing you know, the Taoiseach's going, ah, well, maybe we'll have a chat. Yeah, of course, because, you know, they're saying, well, hold on, this is not the position. And, you know, why are you saying this in public when in private you're agreeing Mm. with all of this? And I think Jack has had a piece about how scathing Fianna Fáilers were privately about this. And there's another thing, just to briefly segue in relation to Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, and we saw over the summer the budget flyers start, and you might see some more in tomorrow's paper, by the way. Oh, let's but, hope so. <laughs> and one of them was in relation to the tax package, because you know Fine Gael have always been, you know, the squeeze middle. We've gone through this in the podcast before. And then there was these headlines over the summer about um, Michael McGrath's going to steal a march on Fine Gael and he's going to slash the USC. 
and everybody calls the, the Universal Social Church the Haitian Universal well, not everybody but most people the Haitian do you not? well no. I do <laughs> I, since it's intro- you like introduction you like, well, like Wendell he's uh, Wendell fan. Holmes my, it's, <laughs> it's, like paying taxes it's my favourite tax the yeah. USC you yeah. have favourite taxes? yeah I do Yeah, top yeah. five Top five. Yeah. we're not friends <laughs> we're not friends anymore but um, yeah you know and, and I can see that in the budget lines now because Michael McGraw wants to go in and make his stamp he's like I'm the one with the billions now it's Fianna Fáil's turn to but, but of course still play the softly softly card while being like we're not going to wreck the economy don't worry I'm <laughs> not like before so there's budget um, there's budget manoeuvres there's farming manoeuvres yeah. tricky times ahead because they want to be seen to be cohesive but they also need to outline their individuality how much of this is judges. harmless play acting Pat and how much of it is a sign that things might you know in time just get really quite frayed because these parties have two different things they need to do. They need to hang together, but they need to differentiate themselves. Yeah, too. I think it's a bit. Of, I think it's a bit of both. Um, uh, as we never tired of saying. Uh, I mean, first of all, Fianna Fáil were genuinely cheesed off with uh, with Varadkar's uh, intervention, and while they will get over this, uh, this get over this bump, and there's a lot more. They have a lot more in common than uh, than than separates them within government. Not least the commitment to shared program for government and the growing sense within large parts of the government, not exclusively held by all members of the government, uh, to my certain knowledge. But uh, I think there's enough ministers on both sides believe that the government will succeed or fail uh, together. But the general problem for Fianna Fáil and for Fianna Gael as we head into a year of elections next year, possibly two, possibly uh, three elections, um, is that they are coalition. We've talked about this many times here before, that they are coalition colleagues but they will be rivals for many of the same votes. And that is going to be, that's going to be difficult. It's going to be difficult to manage at local level. But if you can't rely on the Taoiseach mm. <laughs> to stick to the programme, then So what I do you make of Leo Varadkar's behaviour then? Typical. Typical. I mean, well, it, it is part of his political makeup, right? I mean, I remember when, when they were when they were swapping uh, roles, himself and Neil Martin, at Christmas, myself and Simon Carswell did a big kind of essay on, you know, Leo Varadkar, you know, What's the story there? <laughs> and um, I'm sure everyone remembers, Jack. Yeah. Uh, and the, I mean, one of the factors that uh, was identified across government within his own party and within the other two coalition parties is just, you know, he is a kind of variable factor in and of himself. His political style, his way of doing politics can be a, can be a destabilizing factor um, because of the way in which he, he approaches it. And, that's kind of succinctly expressed, I think, in the in the the nitrates derogation intervention, which I don't think will be kind of you know I don't think we'll be recalling it in a years time necessarily. But so what like is because the political style though is it is it just acting just, the smart arse? Just, is no, it, no, 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 no. Uh, it's, it's it's more subtle than that. And just like to look at the nitrates derogation thing. So like what he did not do was formally overrule a cabinet minister. What he did not do was depart in any way from the government approach. What he did was basically double up on what Charlie McConnell had already done and write to the commissioner, whose name I can't pronounce, and invite him to come to Ireland to meet the farmers, which is something that Charlie McConnell had already done. So formally, there's no sin. He's not offside there. But what he, what he did mm-hmm. was give the impression that Fine Gael and that he were more willing to accommodate or reflect or lobby for uh, the, in this in this instance, yeah. you know, the farmers or insert an, in, an interest group here. And in, in so doing, that destabilised and undermined relations between Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil. And I think that that is part of, of what he does. You know, he he, try and, he tries to kind of sketch out or claim different patches of, but of, I have of to political say, when, when, when I when through I hear, these kind of interventions. When I hear that, Jen, he sounds to me like 
the worst sort of work work colleague. You could imagine working beside somebody like that who's kind of doing this. And they do they didn't break any rules, they didn't do anything wrong, but they just did something to really irritate you. You kind For of the sound hell like of it. You've got somebody in mind I, there. Yeah, I'm not sure I, it would be appropriate I, 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 to I have say. a list under the table. <laughs> and he's also next looking top five taxes. <laughs> <laughs> top five, five worst colleagues. colleagues. He's also looking intensely at me this, when this, he this says, "What did be, I do?" This will all be in the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> did I fail to submit something? But on isn't deadline that, you know, or? isn't it though the kind of? Yeah, it, no. it's, in, it's intensely irritating if you're supposed to be working closely with a colleague. In fact, I imagine 100 percent it will be. But you were asking, you know, about what is Leo Varadkar's style, and you've written that excellent piece that everybody remembers. Yes. Um, and Leo Varadkar's style has changed, I think, um, in his second term as Taoiseach um, in ways that I think maybe he doesn't even understand because the first time around, you know, you remember him in his early days as a politician. He kind of shoots from the hip. He says things straight off the bat, sometimes seem, seemingly without thinking, but it, always with the impression that I'm going to tell you exactly what's happening rather than giving you the sugar-coated version. Now, journalists love that because... We're all tired of hearing politicians speak, and I suppose the general public too. Um, and I think in his second term as Taoiseach now, he comes across as a lot more serious, a lot more reserved, a lot more worried. He always comes across as like anxious now almost. So anxious might be an overstatement. but Not a little enjoying bit. his job as much? Yeah, and it's been put to him a fair few times, by the way. You know, why, why does it seem this way? And he's actually said, I don't know. Like, maybe I just appreciate the gravity of the job more, which is a very interesting thing to say. But I think... I don't know, like, but is he even a little bit more quieter this time around, seems to me. Um, but I think in terms of his style, I think he'll have to, he'll always revert to type and I think he'll have to bite down hard on his lip over the next 12 months because he'll want to say the Fine Gael on, he'll want to put the Fine Gael party first. Um, but of course he's got these, and then we never even mentioned the Green Party <laughs> Even in terms of this budget piece I'm working on tomorrow, the Greens are like, oh, better not say that's anything. In, that's interesting, actually, because you're speaking of of unhappy farmers and sort of discontent in rural Ireland. You were down at the Ploughing Championships yes. uh, making this week, my, jacking my debut. And I, I gather there weren't quite gallows with effigies of Eamon Ryan, but not far off it from what you hear of the way farmers are talking about the Green Party these days. Uh, yeah, well, they don't like the Greens. I think that much is obvious. Um they they aren't hanging him in effigy uh, yet. Um, but look, I think that uh, an opposition or, you know, just being being provoked by a green politics and things like uh, the re-wetting of bogs or turf cutting or spending allocation to, to, to rural roads and assigning all those policies to the presence of, of the Greens in government. And that kind of thread as something that mobilizes voter cohorts within rural Ireland is a real thing. And I think that the the existence of that is kind of partially what is playing out in, in the the uh, the antagonism between Fianna Gael and, and Fianna Fáil, because they know that their potential voters are um are, you know, animated by that, but they're also potentially being peeled off by by independence. So I think that part of it is trying to signal to those voters that, you know, they they think a bit like them, um, that they're not going to take all these green policies necessarily lying down. And I think you've seen that a lot in, in Fine Gael, where particularly a lot of the backbenchers and senators have been given kind of more free reign to, uh, to, to go after the Greens. And there was a little bit of that earlier on this week, just before uh, he went off to, to the US, it may have been the tail end of last week, actually. Um, Eamon Ryan had a meeting with uh, Fine Gael backbenchers and senators who were concerned about rural road spending. And it, it didn't kick off and it wasn't around. It wasn't a particularly interesting news story, but just the very fact that they're seeking these kind of set pieces and seeking to establish as, as, as an element in the narrative that they're not taking it lying down and they're willing to challenge this 
I think, speaks to that broader need for those two traditional big beasts to continue to accommodate that part of the rural Ireland vote. Are they, are they, they're very vulnerable on it. Are they they right? are oh, yes, well, that's what I was going to ask. Are, are, are they right to be afraid? There's talk of a, there's been talk of for a while now, of there being a farmer's party. There's, there's specific um, rural interests, like, for example, there's a party for, about mica redress in the, in the Northwest, yeah. I think, was set up in the last couple of weeks. Uh, we already have quite a large number of rural independents who play to that kind of constituency. Yeah. But is there more, are there more gains to be made on those kind of sentiments? Uh, yes, I think so. Well, I, I, I think there's definitely a political energy there. You know, the mm. question is, is where it goes. And I wrote a piece this week looking at the, the likelihood or otherwise of a farmers' party. And you know, people people are talking about it a lot. Michael Fitzmaurice, in particular, the Roscommon Galway TD, has said that he's he's having talks about talks and making noises about potentially walking away from politics if this doesn't come to pass. Um, which I'm kind of dubious enough about. Um, my, is, my is, own, is that is that by way of a threat that if the people don't respond that he'll <laughs> that they'll be deprived of, yeah. of his input quite possibly yeah um, my my own personal view is that like if you're a if you're a rural independent or a putative kind of rural candidate why would you encumber yourself with all the baggage of a party whip and regulation. Yeah. And, you know, uh, you know, just even the fundraising stuff like that, all the stuff that comes with running uh, as, as part of a party. There's no, real a party. There's no real incentive because mm. you probably have a really strong brand already and, and a pretty decent base. So I think the most likely element here is that you might get a larger representation both in the local and Europeans and in, in the general election of, of really minded independents, whether they kind of wrap themselves in some kind of loose alliance or something. I was talking to... Um, I was talking to uh, Michael McNamara about that and he was kind of making noises around that, you know, whether there could be some kind of, you know, agreed set of broad principles that they sign up to before the election and, you know, they're endorsed maybe by some kind of, yeah, but, but, it, but, but but a formalised party, I struggle to see it. But the space, the space exists there, I think, as well because of the relative weakness of Sinn Féin amongst kind of, amongst farmers in particular, not necessarily in rural Ireland where you don't see um, their, represent, their, their vote in Connacht, Ulster and Munster being uh, weak by any stretch the imagination, but the Farmers Journal did a really interesting poll, and I found the support for Sinn Féin was twelve percent. That's that's really low compared to yeah. the Finnegan thirty-two percent. They haven't cracked farming vote yet. Yeah, they haven't. And, and, and they're very so, they're very conscious. Of. And so this is it's not just for Finnegan and Fianna Fáil. It's it, it is a challenge for Sinn Féin, isn't it? Because the vote we're talking about here is a is a disgruntled vote. You could. Some of it is an anti-establishment vote. It's people who are sick of the, the usual crowd and want to get them out in some way. But they haven't, you know, Sinn Féin hasn't sold them, hasn't sold them as well. Yeah, I'm not going to Because a lot of that space strong. is already, it's already yeah. filled. There already yeah. is a rural Ireland party. Yeah. It's just not in the same party. It's a bunch of ind- it's a bunch of independents. And if there is, if it, it, it seems to me that if, if there is a, you know, an agreed set of principles that bind them together, agreed before the election, it will be so broad as to be essentially meaningless. And after any election, what I cannot see happening, and we've seen this before with the Independent Alliance, what I can't see is that the independent TDs that are elected will give up sovereignty over their own votes in the Dáil to a broader, uh, to to a party structure that they have only uh, minimal control over. So uh, I just, I'm sceptical about it. I just don't see it happening. vague and ambiguous about some of their climate plans. I think in many ways, uh, what they actually would do in government in relation to agriculture is 
kind of unknown. It's kind of it really yeah. is an unknown territory after the next mm. election as to as to as to where all those things will go. And we see all kinds of political <laughs> shifts, you know, outside Ireland on that dramatic reversal in the United Kingdom this week on the on on the subject as well. Mm. Um, as our listeners will recall from before the break, uh, every week at this time we pick articles that took our fancy from the Irish Times over the preceding seven days. Jen, what have you been reading? Okay, so I picked two articles just to, you know, be a real pain in the ass. Um, only because one of them is quite heavy and depressing. The other one is on the previous page. Kind of a Leo Varadkar play. Oh, how dare you. <laughs> but uh, so the first one is Cathy Sheridan had a piece. This is in Wednesday's paper. She talked about the Russell Brand mm-hmm. controversy. Obviously, it was one of the big, biggest stories of the week. It was the Sunday Times, Times, Dispatches investigation. Um, and it's been running in in the paper, in the, in the Times paper all, all week long really, really kind of horrible sort of revelations and kind of has forced a lot of people to look back on, you know, his entertainment and in inverted commas, you know, his shows and ask, like, why did we not see that this is disgusting? Um, and I, you know, where I stand on it is I always was repelled by Russell Brand. Like, physically, I just think he looks horrendous. looks <laughs> like a rat or something. Um, so I just never, uh, you know, watched or listened but there is a really interesting line in Cathy's piece where she talks about Andrew Tate um, and she talks about this survey uh, that was done. I think uh, the, the name escapes me of the the oh, everyday sexism. And they found for the first time in their social attitude study, the youngest cohort surveyed have significantly more extreme misogynist attitudes than the oldest. Um, she talks about kind of the, the message of, of Andrew Tate. Um, and personally, I did the same thing with Andrew Tate that I did with Russell Brand and go, that's disgusting and I don't want to hear it. But it made me think, actually, I should be listening to Andrew Tate and what he says. And then if anybody I know, particularly younger men, say they're listening to it, then maybe I can have an input rather than being like, oh, I hope he gets over that phase. That's asking quite a lot of yourself, though, isn't it, to have to listen to Andrew Tate? Yeah, but I just feel like I always do this thing where I'm like, that's disgusting, I'm not paying any attention to it. But maybe I should pay more attention. Maybe that's probably one of the th- one of the messages of her piece that, you know, we, we don't want to look back and go, why did we not pay any attention? Anyway, yeah. that, I think that's really interesting. And then there's a piece on the page before, which I kind of tied in to me because it was so depressing, it would drive you to day drinking. <laughs> and <laughs> Roisin Ingle has a brilliant ah, piece about yes, going yes, day drinking okay. in Kilmainham. Yeah. And I just think people should read it because it's just a lovely read. Um, it strikes me that Roisin would sit down and literally make friends with whoever is around her, which is a skill. Think, which is what appeared to be. Because you know yeah. one of the things that, 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 that happens, this is a very personal problem, I don't know if you guys have it, but because of the way phones work now, everything looks the same, like a text message looks the same as an alert from the Irish Times or the New York Times. Yes. So like a thing comes up on my phone on Wednesday says, Roisin Ingle, day drinking in Kilkenny. I said, why is Roisin texting me about day drinking? <laughs> going on. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very niche problem it's for a, the it's media a I know, it is, it is, it is. But it it's is. brilliant. I'm jealous of her skills, but she has a brilliant article about that and just about just the, you know, the joy of day drinking and I'm going to try that myself tomorrow. <laughs> Jack, what have you been reading? Uh, in the depressing vein, um, we haven't talked on this podcast because I know we've, we've given a lot of coverage uh, on, on other podcasts in the paper to it. Um, but the the saga over spinal surgery for for children, and I've picked out Justine McCarthy's piece uh, in in Friday's paper, in today's paper, uh, where she's used a column to kind of what I found interesting about this was she's she's situated the current controversy against the 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 backdrop of, I suppose institutional care in inverted commas or the institutionalization of the institutional approach that has existed in this state towards particularly women and children uh, since foundation of the state. Um, and I just think that's a, that's a particularly interesting 
context to put it within. And also she zeroed in on a comment by the teacher this week where he talked about, you know, it being a wider failure of clinical governance. And I think that there's, there's, I suppose, overriding questions there about not not in this specific instance necessarily, although also in this specific instance, but you know the the, the adequacy of systems of clinic of governance within institutions still in the state, um, and you know that that speaks to perhaps it, it, a, a common lineage to 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 those uh, those older controversies and horrors reaching right through to 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 today that you know these things are not necessarily exposed by systems of governance, but rather, you know, by by individuals or whistleblowers or journalists or something like that. And that in and of itself may 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 speak to an ongoing problem in, in very, how very, we oversee very, institutions very and systems so. in this state. Very much so. I mean it's very I mean it's it's very early days on 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 this story, but it certainly there seems to be real concerns about Things that may have been going on for far too long and checks that 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 weren't there in place. Um, my choice is it may seem slightly dry, but honest to God, it's very interesting. It's a piece um, by um, Naomi O'Leary in the Irish Times on Wednesday. It's about we've 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 had a lot of coverage about the whole question of this corporation tax bonanza from foreign direct investment, and Naomi has a look at an independent report that looks at Ireland's trading record with China over the last year and a half or so, and she tells us uh, this is not the kind of thing I keep a day to day watch on usually, but apparently it's declined really substantially, and Irish trade with China largely derives from the export of, of of chips, semiconductors, really. And there's a lot happening in that world at the moment. The Americans are imposing embargoes on China, which apply uh, all around the world. There's burgeoning talks of a, perhaps a bit of a trade war between the EU and China. The Germans are getting very hot under the collar about the way Chinese electric cars are undercutting their car industry. And in its own way, not a small way, quite a substantial way, there's quite a lot of money involved. This is a kind of an illustration of the the frailty, I suppose, of the Irish economic model, potentially, you know, because it's so subject to these, these changes in the... Uh, in the geopolitics uh, of the world. It's, um, it's, it's true that the components of Sino-Irish trade is one of the things we don't discuss enough on the podcast. I think, I promise we will we will bring it up every week from now on, so your listeners will tune in to that. Pat, what, if anything, have you been reading? Well, I have been criticised in this space before for simply grabbing a piece from that day's paper to fill uh, to fill this I've slot. already done that. So, uh, so I'm actually going to grab a piece from tomorrow's paper which Ooh, is more al- already online and on the subject of the uh, the Rugby World Cup it's Matt Williams yes. column about the match between Ireland and South Africa tomorrow can, can I would I would you like me to read a little bit of it yes, yes. please you yeah. Matt Williams can you do voice? an accent yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay so it starts obsessing over time and space is not confined to astrophysicists while rugby is not rocket science time and space are at its core <laughs> Understanding how time can be increased or reduced according to the amount of space that is provided or taken is the basis of the game. Who said rugby players are dumb? So he goes on to explain everything and then he concludes, bear with me, he concludes, this contest is so very close that the finest margins will determine the winner. Centimetres won can create success and seconds lost may produce defeat. Ireland are capable and ready. This will be a belter. 
I now realise that uh, in the making of our Bertie Hearn documentary, we released a monster, which is um, which is Pat's Pat's accent. That was pretty good. That was Pat, brilliant. actually. I have not to say. just a good Australian accent, but a good Matt Williams. Yeah, it was a accent. very. Yeah. I think it was a yeah. pretty good Matt Williams. And, I, and you I don't know, want you to think that I, I didn't spend many hours practicing. That. Well, mm. and after that, I mean, there's nothing you've, you can you've say. Also, you've also done zero analysis of the piece itself. You've just done an impression. Which <laughs> yeah, is, <laughs> and, and which you, is a great. This way is the way you're going to proceed in the future. You're just going to do impressions of Irish Times columnists every week. Well, too, make things a lot easier. Really. The impressions there with Pat Lee. I think we could all vote for that. But we're going to leave that for... <laughs> we're going to leave that for for this week anyway. Pat will be back with more impressions next week and some of us will also uh, will also have some some ideas as well. But for the moment, um, <laughs> thanks very much to Pat, to Jack and to Jen. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon. Our engineer is JJ Vernon. We're going to be back very soon indeed, but have a fantastic weekend. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.